British Bank Awards are just around the corner. Voting for 2021 is now open, so it's time to have your say and decide who will be crowned a winner at the Oscars of the banking world. 11FS has been nominated for Consultancy of the Year and Pioneer of the Year. If you'd like to vote for us, just head to bit.ly forward slash British Bank Awards 2021. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer and today we are celebrating 500 episodes of this very little podcast that we started. Between various office moves, company growth and of course, well, the pandemic. Four plus years and 500 episodes have just whizzed by. So in honor of this momentous anniversary, we're going to be taking a bit of a look back over the last few years of episodes and the four biggest fintech trends and topics from our time in the podcast game and catch up with some of our very favorite guests as well. So today I am joined by my fabulous co-hosts, Simon Taylor, co-founder and head of ventures over here at 11FS. How's it going, Simon? Really, really well. I cannot believe it's been 500 episodes. Like fintech sort of became a thing, didn't it? It was like rapscallions, will they take on the big guys? And now it's now it's very much arrived. Um, I, I'm not saying it's all because of the podcast. I think we were just there at the right time. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been an amazing journey. How are you doing? It is a weird one, isn't it? 500 episodes. It's got. It's come so quickly, hasn't it? We feel still so young, but uh, they have definitely come around fast. Uh, and of course, we are also joined by Jason Bates, Deputy CEO and Head of Product. How are you doing, Jason? I'm good. I'm good. I'm living the cliche lockdown life. Uh, made bread at some point yesterday, and today I was on the Peloton. So I'm basically living the cliche. Lovely. Well, I had drive through McDonald's, so like, I feel like I beat all of you today i'm not gonna lie uh but i was a good boy so i deserved it so anyway right so we're gonna be talking about some of the the topics some of the hottest things that we've seen over this period of time as simon says fintech has really grown up over this period of time even if we haven't then uh, and actually getting to grips with those big trends and what we thought were going to be big trends over this period is probably a pretty decent place to start and, and go through so first up and sadly we're going to be talking about 2016's biggest topic of course, it was Brexit, wasn't it? Uh, this was the topic on our very, very first show right back in 2016, following on from the referendum vote. And it is still a hot topic now, albeit we're a little bit further through it. It's happened now, hasn't it? Um, but I mean, what did Brexit look like back then? And why did we think like talking about Brexit would be like a just a fun, light, you know, opener for the podcast? Simon, has it turned out how we expected it to? Has anything since 2016 turned out how we expected? Let's not forget Trump got elected in the same year, and it's been it's been a weird four years. I feel like at some point in July or June 2016, the universe split in two, and we're living in the alternate reality where things just got a bit weird for a while. Um, I think we thought about if you go back and listen to the first episode of FinTech Insider, you know, we were obviously expecting that you know, FinTech would probably struggle with this a little bit at first, would maybe have some talent issues, but it's all taken a lot longer than anybody thought it was. You know, these referendums come along and it feels like the thing happened. Four years later, the thing is just starting to happen and FinTech's bigger than ever. It seems like uh, you can't slow them down. Mm. It's weird. I mean, I, I was talking to, talking to my mum about this one earlier on. It really, I, I mean, I'm going to get all doom and gloom in it. I'm going to try and not go too little Britain, but I'm going to get all doom and gloom on it. Is this like, just like the end of the British Empire? Like, is this like, this is the 
the embers going out on the British Empire. We have rescinded back to this time. Even even Scotland's leaving the UK. Uh, you know, they're planning on sort of Dude, going further the, away. The British Empire ended a long time ago. It just so happens that there are quite a few politicians that just haven't really caught up with that and are still playing as if we are, you know, that uh, global superpower that rules the oceans, which, you know, just isn't true. I do think there is something interesting in that, though, David, about like, what does that mean for the fintechs that are here? And, you know, how you're impacted by politics and policy? And do you get still build a really cool company? Do you get to still continue to grow? And actually, there has been some change in the UK. We have saw MasterCard are going to increase their interchange rates um, for non-UK transactions for, for some of the banks. That actually, you know, given some of the challenger banks in the UK have been potentially struggling for profitability, like maybe there's some good headwinds that could come and maybe there are some silver linings there as well. So I'm going to try and bring back optimism because it is February. It is grey outside. Uh, who knows? Thanks, guys. You stopped me going through having a, a Union Jack flying in the background there, didn't you, for a second? That was that was good. You pulled it back. Um, but it is, and it is interesting. I mean, a lot of the uncertainty at the beginning was whether you know things like passporting and, and whatnot would be a problem uh, and whether actually investment would taper off a little bit in terms of the uh, the the undecisive nature around or indecision around whether the UK would still be a great jumping point off, uh, but I think the um, the things that we've seen in the the regulation, the regulatory environment that we've got here, has shown that it's still a great place to be investing. It's still a great place to grow an organisation, even if it is a, a slightly more challenging prospect to sort of export that into uh, other places in in Europe. And um, it is strange, despite uh, and as uh, as Jason says, despite the. Uh, the sort of British Empire was somewhat coming to an end quite a long time ago, then actually it's weird that this little old island is still dragging in so much investment and opportunity given the small amount of people that actually live here, especially when you combine that with really the the size of the US or size of China. It's sort of weird, really, that the UK still has so much leverage in the the global financial system. What, What would we put that down to? Is this just... LSE doing an amazing job of like flying that flag or is it the uh, is it something else what's the secret source for the listeners I think it's timing and optics um, the thing that the UK did really really well was kind of bring politicians out and say this is level 39 this is the home of fintech um, here's the reports here's the funding that's happening let's publish data uh, and then had some early successes and you know we the US had uh, simple and moving and you know simple has recently closed but really created a second wave in the US that we're now seeing that followed thereafter the UK never really had that first wave and its first wave did did quite a little bit better the Starlings the Monzos the Revoluts and so on they were the cultural zeitgeist in in tech and really helped build a UK tech scene that captured the imagination of others. And now you know, Chime and Varro and others that may have even predated it have gone on to massive success in the US. But that point in time, that moment in time really captured people's attention. And then the regulatory thing, right? That sort of um, the fact that uh, there was an intentional approach to make more banks by the regulator and create competition. And the policy advantage of the UK, I think, still remains. Its relative simple um, regulatory structure is huge. Yeah. And, you know, beyond fintech, I guess, looking back into banking and finance, you know, City of London has been massive. It struck me today that actually the UK is, I think, one of the only global powers that didn't have some massive transition via a revolution. You know, if you look way, way back, you know, there's no Independence Day in the UK, um, whereas almost everywhere else there is something like that. 
And so this, you know, historically, the UK was an extremely powerful nation and managed to sort of parlay that into being a financial centre in Europe, which has then sort of moved things on. I guess we, we did have those times but it's just a lot further back. Like we had scuffles with Romans and Vikings and stuff. Do you know what I mean? It's just a, it's a lot further back and we haven't written a, uh, a musical with uh, hip hop vibes to it in the way that Hamilton has. So, you know, I think it's, uh, it's just, we're just a much older generation of, um, of size, but it, it, it does still feel though that we're the, the little engine in the middle to a certain degree. And actually, you know, given the power, given the dominance of the, the financial markets that are here, that despite that size, we still have a, a major part to play in the global economy, which is amazing. I think the, I think the things for Brexit that I, I thought were, I guess, most interesting looking back are one, it wasn't Brexit, it was uncertainty. A little like COVID, um, you know, when it first started, it wasn't the fact that there was a pandemic. It was the fact that no one really knew what was going to happen. And therefore, lots of things went on hold. And, you know, businesses shrunk and people started saving. And that was really, I think, even more than the pandemic, the story of Brexit, because it was years, you know, ultimately, there was no news for a very long time, apart from hearsay and reporting on discussions. Yet, uh, you know, media outlets continued you know, breakfast TV was talking about Brexit every so often with no news to talk about. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting that it's uncertainty that's the enemy rather than the actual split in some respects. Um, and, and the second thing, I think, uh, second trend, which went through Brexit, through Trump and across the world, is this sort of uh, movement towards the um, disbelieving experts, you know, the failure of experts in the face of popular opinion and myth and, you know, people making things up on Facebook. You know, suddenly the UK is going to get 350 million a year from Europe. It's going to pay for the NHS. And suddenly Trump's going to build a wall. And I don't care what you say, like, this is the reality. I think, you know, 2015-16, I'm not sure we really understood that we'd moved from a, a culture of expertise and having experts debate the big subjects and going, oh, and then come to a consensus to a point where suddenly it was a free-for-all. And basically, you could say anything to swing opinion in your way. And if someone disagreed, you just said they were lying. And there's something about the, you know, growth of social networks and the growth of peer-to-peer -peer conversations in the absence of a an editorial process with virtue, with principles that I think is actually sort of spread across that era as well. Mm. I do, I do think that. I think uh, in the UK, I don't think it has been such a a diverse uh, society, a diverse environment, arguably since the 1980s, when it was you know clear which side of the sort of picket lines people were on when the minor strikes were taking place. And actually, as you say, Jason, globally, like that is playing out, you know, 50% of a giant population think one thing, 50% of them think another. And actually, the backlash of that is quite scary for the direction that different things have sort of taken us in, isn't it? What, Simon, what do you think? I think you're spot on. And actually, if you look at what you had in the 80s, you had arguably the yuppie culture versus the working population. And now what we've seen is uh, wealth inequality is greater than it's ever been. 
um, the haves and the have-nots, the gap has really, really increased, um, and the middle class has hollowed out. So the prize for doing well and for getting on on life in the middle class has decreased. The amount of credit and uh, lending in the market has increased, and that's been how we fixed economic problems. We reduce interest rates so that people can borrow more, and then they end up in more debt, but they have less long-term economic opportunity. If you come out of university today, you've got maybe forty, fifty thousand pounds, maybe a hundred thousand dollars in debt, and you've now got to get a job for twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, and you're going to try and make your way back up and one day own a house. I know, by the way, house prices are increasing. So you can see that um, sort of lack of opportunity playing out in politics as populism. Do you, do you think that's really true, though? Because, I mean, if you look at like the Gini coefficients, a lot of the facts around wealth inequality, like there hasn't been a massive swing. You know, you look at the ONS figures on, you know, house income inequality. There's an interesting thing around house prices about assets and wealth versus income. But actually, like, you know, in, in the 19. 19- 10s, 20s, you know, early part of the century, it was crazy. And while it's dropped, it's not changed significantly. Um, I do think there's something about the middle classes, uh, you know, the poorest doing better, the, the super 0.1% doing crazy well, and actually as being able to see that through media. Um, but but actually for the middle class there, you know, I would argue uh, that, you you know, they look at their children and say, actually, they're not better off than I am. And, you know, most of my wealth is in is in my house and all of this kind of stuff. So I don't know, like there's such confusion, I think, with narratives and, you know, and is that true or not? You know, I I think there's a um, I think there's an interesting thing there that actually I I wonder if the change is almost uh, almost the, the negative of the access of funds across the piece. I think we could make the whole show about this and we're going to move on shortly. But but actually, it used to be the wealthy could get access to, to funding in a, in a weird and wonderful way that actually the lower classes couldn't. So arguably, the spending power across all areas is higher. It's just the lower end of that is intoxicating people into debt in a way that you wouldn't have thought of before. So the spending power is there. It's just whether this is a ticking time bomb that becomes sort of recognized when things the the tide goes out and you realize that there's a lot of uh, a lot more uh, a lot more debt than the reality looks like. Yeah, and I think that'd be it'd be a really interesting show to do. Like what are the perceptions of sort of wealth in the UK or globally at the moment? Like is consumer debt ballooning? Is wealth inequality really going to extremes? Like, you know, and maybe maybe we can get some people on to uh, you know, to talk about what the evidence suggests at the moment and where the narrative is in the in the public. I think that sort of um, that balance is a really interesting thing to explore. Let's do it. All right. Well, we got uh, the chance to catch up actually with fintech journalist Anna Herrera, who was actually the guest on that very first show, uh, to tell us a little bit about her thoughts on this and how it has progressed since that first one. So uh, let's hear the clip now. From the perspective of the Europeans, I've seen letters from Litania, the ambassador from Vilnius, saying, come and move all your operations over here. We're very fintech friendly. Berlin has been calling London fintech startups to say, move over to Berlin. Do you think we'll see a, a, a big move of companies over to European like-minded centers, or do you think London's going to maintain itself? I don't. I don't know if it's necessarily going to move yet. I think. I think it's too early. But as you said, I was speaking to FinTech France, which is their lobby group, and they met with people from the Minister of the Economy last week, and they're drafting a guide to tell people how to set up companies. So obviously, that doesn't solve all the problems that France has as a hub for starting startups, but it does make it maybe easier, at least 
it makes people that were already there and were thinking of coming to London because hey, it was just two hours away, a reason to stay. Because I, I, I'm sure, I mean, I know startups can adapt very quickly, but I don't know what can they, in these months where nothing's decided, what are they adapting towards? What are they, if you're big like Cedar, you can say we're going to get a license everywhere and it's fine. But if you're just starting up, are you, I just see it as a bit more complicated. Hey, Anna, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I mean, joining us on episode one and joining us on episode 500 as well. I mean, as we heard in that clip, you were on our very first show back in 2016, and we were just starting out on that Brexit journey. Now that we're a little bit sort of closer towards the end of it, albeit not quite at the end of it, um, what do you think the fintech market in the UK really looks like on the other side of Brexit? So I think what, what has happened over the past year, meaning the pandemic and COVID sort of messed up everything that had to do with the Brexit and people's expectations. And it's sort of taken over both in terms of what people are preoccupied with and also some of the elements such as people working from home. So does it really matter, you know, if you're rec- where you're recruiting at the moment, you might recruit someone and they're staying in their home country until they, they can move. And then also there's been an explosion of digital financial services because people are stuck at home. And so I guess, you know, companies will have grown and their business will have grown despite um, Brexit. So there might be a false illusion that everything is fine or it might actually be fine and we don't know yet. And it's also just generally hard for me and and a bit sad not to be able to gauge this because, you know, part of my job is also going to conferences and meeting people and going to their offices. And, and, you know, you can sense the vibrancy of, of an ecosystem by actually seeing humans. And I moved back to London in August. And I wasn't even, I didn't even have time to like capture that brief moment when we were allowed to see each other. And so I, you know, I, I really can't sense how much has actually changed because I, I left the UK right after basically episode one and now I'm back and I, I haven't been able to tell yet. Well, hopefully it wasn't episode one that made you uh, decide to leave. But uh, I mean, and that is interesting, isn't it? Because obviously over this period of time, we've seen such a, as you say, such a dramatic shift towards digital that potentially it could be masking much greater impacts on uh, the effects of of Brexit than, than really we would have expected. We have just no way of knowing in that parallel universe where we would be now. But I mean, I, I guess one of the things that we were fearful of really is you know, London has spent such a significant amount of time in, in the UK more broadly, establishing itself as a global magnet for fintech in terms of investment and interesting companies. I mean, have we seen that challenged at all during this period? Because, I mean, we alluded to it a little bit with, you know, Berlin, and uh, and obviously we've seen different things with France over this period and different regulators catching on. So, I mean, has the crown sort of fallen a little bit when it comes to London's capital of fintech? I don't think so at the moment, really, if, if I have to say. Um, I don't know if because there aren't any strong enough contenders. But I was just thinking, like, yesterday, JP Morgan finally re- announced that they're launching their digital bank and they're doing it here. And obviously, there's reasons why they're doing it here that aren't, like, connected to Brexit. But, you know, they, they're an American bank, so English. So, you know, there's so many reasons. But that's kind of telling, right? They hired 400 people to start a new digital bank and they, and they did it here. So, you know, that's a new business, from a very old institution that will start here and it will be a new fintech business with new jobs. So I think it's some stuff is still open for discussion, but you know, a lot of it seems to have still stayed. Maybe just it'll take longer for the effects to, to show and it won't just be Brexit, it will be a mix of things. And so you won't be able to say, this is what happened. It'll be, you know, was it this? Was it like a big recession? What, what happened? 
Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, N26 aside, we haven't seen anybody just decide to uh, vacate these shores over this period of time. And I think they uh, they gave sort of different reasons, Brexit not necessarily being, uh, being one of them. But, uh, you know, we definitely haven't seen, like you say, a complete erosion of talent or VCs not pouring more money into to this space, which, you know, still feels pretty frothy, doesn't it? I mean, just standing back, I guess, from this, what are your predictions more broadly for the industry in the UK? Because, you know, we've gone through quite a significant period of time. We're still going through a quite a significant period of, uh, of disruption. Um, and this transition, both, as you say, from a COVID perspective, but with Brexit as well, what do you see at the, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel here? What's going to happen? I think, you know, all industries have to mature a bit. And so I'm just curious to see, I, I imagine there will be at some point, and, and maybe it's already started to happen, there will be clear winners and then some of those who don't make it. And I don't think we've seen enough of that. I think we, especially, and some of it will be propelled because of COVID and, you know, some money might run out, maybe not the money from the VCs uh, for other reasons, but, you know, money from consumers. Like, I think it's still so, there's so much unknown uh, in everybody's personal lives and everything, and but also just generally in, in the economy. And, and, and of course, then it trickles down to, to fintech it's really hard to make predictions, but fortunately, that's not even my job. I ask you to make predictions normally, and then I write them down. So that's great. <laughs> well, that's a that's a, a great way of doing it, I have to say. But uh, well, thank you very much for, for joining us as always, Anna. Uh, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, and moving on from that, we're sort of racking our brains of what another topic was over this period of time. And we plumbed on blockchain because there was so much sort of fury of the the dawn of the new age of technology at the the beginning of this. Uh, And it was really around 2017 that the blockchain conversation really got started, uh, particularly in the the mainstream. In December of that year, Bitcoin hit its highest price at $19,783 and six cents uh, per Bitcoin. Ether was up over 2,300% that year. And big banks like Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan Chase, uh, Standard Chartered were all seriously considering blockchain applications. Uh, at the time, there was a huge amount of excitement about it. I mean, so where are we now in, in the, if I went back to my Gartner days, where are we on the hype cycle? Are we still uh, sort of like hyping it up or is it people are executing in this space? Yeah, I guess, where are we for what, right? So the blockchain space has gotten eerily quiet and the crypto space has gotten louder and louder. And actually, you can plot different subsectors on the hype cycle. So I would actually say Bitcoin is arguably in its little plateau of productivity right now because Square, you can buy it through that, Robinhood, PayPal. Um, PayPal said uh, in their last uh, earnings release that they saw their users double the amount they were using the app since they added Bitcoin. So Bitcoin may have a lot of questions and challenges about its energy use and all of the arguments people throw against it. But if it's effective at one thing, it's consumer engagement, and it works extremely well for that. But there's another thing coming up behind that, which is this whole concept of decentralized finance, the idea that I I no longer need um, a London Stock Exchange. I can just use software to do what London Stock Exchange does. And that's really under the top of the hype cycle and driving a lot of the interest in Ethereum right now. So there's that sort of crypto world that seems to be really having its second moment. And that's very, very interesting and, and exciting. But the blockchain and DLT space is kind of in that trough of disillusionment. It's it's kind of gone away, 
And yet, quietly, there are some interesting things happening. You know, the guys at R3, the central banks, CBDC, it's all starting to just appear and start to get really interesting. Um, so we may see these two worlds start to converge in the next three to five years. So that would be my um, my attempt at hype cycling it. I don't know how I did. I've never done a Gartner before. <laughs> I, I, that was a brilliant Gartner. Uh, I, I, it's interesting, isn't it? Is DeFi a grown-up version of the first wave of blockchain then? It's essentially people standing back and going, actually, it might be right, but can banks buy this? And actually being in a situation where banks and, and other organizations as well, you know, from a regulatory perspective, being in a situation where, uh, you know, people can really understand and therefore adopt these things. Because, you know, really that first, there's a lot less Lambos being bought, right? You know, like there's a lot less of the crazy stuff that starts making people feel super duper uncomfortable. Um, so it feels maybe the industry over this period and the people engaging with it have grown up as well, you know? And we've just started to see the, you know, the emergence of people. So, you know, Elon Musk has come out saying he supports uh, Bitcoin, et cetera, and various different things that are in there. So, uh, and actually, as you say, you know, the, I guess the one great thing about the pandemic is I don't have taxi drivers asking me if I've heard about this thing called Bitcoin at this stage, because we're not being uh, sort of uh, taxied about. But uh, Jason, what do you think? Are we, uh, have we sort of, was the hype too great for blockchain to really ever live up to the hype? I don't know. Like in my most cynical moments, uh, I wonder whether the hype for blockchain as a method of payment and a store of value and something that was going to replace fiat currency actually was a a convincing enough story that it, it fueled the creation of a new asset class, which is really as a sort of commodity where it belonged. So you had to talk about how Bitcoin would be able to pay for things and move money about, and it would be the future of this somewhat anarchistic but free world. And that by doing that, people bought it, which sent the price up, which then led to this sort of cycle around people going, oh, it's worth something and I can buy. And actually, it's not correlated with my stock portfolio and my bonds and my you know, land uh, real estate. So, oh, that's actually quite useful. And then more and more people pile in. And so what I'm interested in is, you know, does Bitcoin still grab onto the we're a method of payment? Because actually, no one's using it like that. Everyone's just investing in it because they think it will grow, go up over time. And because of the confidence in that, it goes up over time. So, you know, we were talking earlier, Simon was talking about um, the fact that every sort of bank and challenger bank and, you know, card is trying to integrate crypto into being able to, to pay. But I wonder whether that's a, a thing or whether um, Bitcoin has pulled the ultimate con of selling you one thing to get to another space, which is really where it, it kind of belongs. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, Square is probably the canonical example here in that they've got this whole idea of stacking sats or satoshis, tiny fragments of Bitcoin. And they've built this whole culture around uh, using Bitcoin almost as reward points. And we're seeing that pop up elsewhere. But if you go back to the original white paper of Bitcoin, as you say, Jason, it described um, peer-to-peer electronic cash. That is what the people intended, but it's not what it's ended up at. But what you see in the DeFi space now is the whole subject of stable coins. So USDT, USDC. And these are dollars that I can send as around the world as fast as an email. So instead of going to PayPal and logging into PayPal and then sending somebody on a PayPal account um, the, the US dollars, I log into any wallet for USDC and I can send anybody with a compatible wallet 
call it the US dollars. So it looks more like email client and email, which does start to go towards payments. And that, I think, is still, as you rightly say, causes a lot of confusion because Bitcoin looks a lot more like gold. It's this thing that seems to not be correlated to the stock market that's interesting in its own right, makes a really nice sort of loyalty card program around a, a banking product. And the other side, you know, is, is interesting to institutions, uh, possibly interesting to corporates to hold on their balance sheet. And then this stablecoin space, that's this whole other thing that could be really, really exciting. Uh, and I guess then we've got, you know, central bank cryptocurrencies and money, like, so because if everyone's moving these US dollars around, then surely the treasury really wants to be the, you know, the main source of that. And I know you know, I guess a couple of years ago, people were writing white papers. The Bank of England came out with a great white paper on central bank money. Um, how do you see that playing? And would you see central bank crypto pushing out stable coins because actually they've got the, you know, the weight of the issuer behind them? It's interesting, isn't it? It depends on where you look in the world. So in China, the People's Bank of China is launching digital currency electronic payment. Um, and part of that is getting Alipay and Tencent to only issue and work with um, sort of currency that they can see into and effectively have policy control over. And, and, and it helps them from a regulatory perspective. But it also helps the renminbi be more internationalized. And you can move the renminbi currency around the world within those wallets. Whereas in the US, um, they're still talking about putting in FedNow, which is their version of sort of faster payments, a real-time growth settlement system. And actually, they have a history of the private sector coming out with an entirely new technology. I mean, Visa itself was Bank of America card, Bank America card, then becomes Visa, then effectively becomes an arm of the state. Similarly, SWIFT is really allowing, is really sort of backseat controlled by OFAC and the US dollar. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see the private sector initiatives like a USDC or something like it uh, start to get co-opted um, by the US. So you've got to remember that it, the answer won't be the same around the world, um, but it, it could be very, very interesting to watch. And uh, the central banks would probably play more of an oversight role rather than the pure, so they won't have money printers like they would have in, in the old fashioned years. They're not going to be uh, a factory. And they're not doing the digital version of the printing but they are keeping oversight of it and and like they would with lots of other payment systems. Goodness me, we went from overthrowing countries to overthrowing central banks like that. I, I'm actually quite scared of what the, the third one we go on to after this is. But it, it, is, it is amazing to see, like you say, the unintended or as we see them, the unintended consequences of kind of exposing an industry to these things. We actually managed to get the predictions from Jack Gallagher, who is the COO of Zcash. Uh, he also appeared on Blockchain Insider special back in the day. Uh, let's hear from him and what he had to say. And let's see if actually what he thinks today is is any different. You know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I began my career in the dot-com boom. And then after it burst, I went to work in, 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 in the city. Now, what was interesting there was the large enterprises like the Deutsches and the Morgan Stanleys and, and so on. They waited until the technology was a little bit more mature. And then they stepped in and started using it when it, when it was ready, when it was... Um, stable when it was secure, you know, after SSL had been had been invented and all this sort of stuff. What we're seeing, I think, right now with blockchain and distributed ledger technology is a faster cycle of development and innovation. And for some reason, 
I think uh, particularly the banks, but also other other enterprises have cottoned on that 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 this is potentially disruptive or you know can potentially give them significant cost savings, and therefore they're getting in at an earlier stage. So, for example, getting in and experimenting with Ethereum, even though you know that it's not yet ready with the necessary privacy and, and confidentiality provisions you know, to support all the use cases. doesn't mean you can't experiment with it a little bit. It's, you, know, you get to learn something, you get to figure out you know, which pieces work, which pieces don't work, and, and where there, there are requirements that, that, that now need to be fulfilled. Well, Jack, thank you for joining us again a few years since that clip. As you heard, we were at a moment in history where, you know, Bitcoin and crypto were just starting to enter the mainstream back then. And you sort of compared it to the internet and the dot-com boom. But with a bit of time and a bit of distance, do you still think the dot-com boom is the right metaphor or are we looking at something vastly different these days? I think the metaphor still holds. The biggest difference is that there's been this bifurcation, I think, between cryptocurrencies where there's you know, ongoing excitement and growing adoption you know, with hedge funds and companies buying Bitcoin, Bitcoin hitting all-time highs, you know, all, this, all, the, all these headlines and excitement uh, versus the, the sort of enterprise blockchain side where the adoption and the implementation happens on longer timescales. Um, and it also happens behind the scenes of these big corporations, not necessarily in public where everybody can see it happening. So, yeah, I think I think the analogy still holds. It's not obviously identical to to the dot com boom, but I think the cycle uh, that that we're going through is is along the same lines. It's interesting. Somebody once told me that there was a bank in the UK when the internet first came along that tried to make their own internet because the internet itself wasn't fast enough and wasn't secure enough. And we might be seeing a similar thing with crypto as well. But do you think that period of like experimentation and exuberance is ended in like, oh, let's put out a press release and there's a genuine interest from institutions to use the technology in a way that is production ready or there's just even pull from their clients? I don't necessarily think it's a pull from clients so much as a push from the big institutions to realize the sort of benefits that the technology can provide. You know, in, in that clip, I talked about, you know, saving on costs. And I think that, 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 that remains the key driver. I'm a big fan of the Gartner hype cycle. And I think that's very applicable here. You know, we're, we're, we're past the peak of inflated expectations, during which I think a lot of companies jumped on the blockchain bandwagon you know, issued that press release to hype up their innovation you know, credentials for PR purposes. And we're now at the point where the hype has subsided and it's a case of going through that long process, that grind of building and integrating these systems. Unlike you know, brand new startups where you're starting from a greenfield site where you've got nothing that you need to worry about in terms of legacy infrastructure, you know, these big enterprises, financial institutions, they've got a lot of legacy systems and processes that you need to integrate with. So the implementation timelines are, are, are longer. It is harder for the big banks, definitely. They've got to turn that oil tanker and uh, good luck to them in, in, in doing that process. Uh, you know where we are if you need a hand. Also, I want to sort of step back from all of that and just sort of say, where do you think the whole crypto space and the blockchain space is going? Do you think we'll see a conversion of the enterprise space and the crypto space, or are they just completely diametrically opposed worlds? I think for the time being, they're going to stay separate. I, I do occasionally hear people talking about the prospect of 
enterprises, you're building systems that integrate, for example, with the Ethereum blockchain. So you've got the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance and obviously the public Ethereum blockchain. I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon. I think it's possible, but I think it's more likely that you know, the, the sort of enterprise implementations will continue along a path where the companies themselves control what's going on. For me, I think the next big frontier is scalability. So blockchain was born out of, out of Bitcoin, was then developed and iterated on in public by cryptocurrency teams like, like the Ethereum guys, and then companies have adopted it. I see that trend continuing where we now have experimentation around scalability happening for the cryptocurrencies. So we have things like Ethereum looking at sharding. We've got zero-knowledge-based roll-up technology being worked on. That's, that's something that the, that the Zcash team are working on. You know, I think, I think that's going to be the next, the next big step because if we're going to see mass adoption of cryptocurrencies, then we need to have that scalability the problem solved. The tech is still being built, despite all the headlines. It's this stuff, I think, by the people closest to it is still recognized as a work in progress. And I think that's a really good point, Jack. Well, Jack, always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for being here on our episode 500. Thanks very much for having me. All right, folks, on that note, we're going to take a little bit of a break and shout out to some of our sponsors. We'll be back with you in a second. This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. This episode is also brought to you by MyTech. Digital identity verification trusted the world over. Secure more high-value customers while reducing risk and costs with MyTech, a global leader and enterprise partner in identity verification technology. Create certainty in today's digital world with MyTech. Thanks very much, and on with the show. So for the past few years, banking transformation has been pretty damn central in terms of financial services. So the topic we're going to be revisiting is legacy tech versus digital cores. The industry is moving from legacy tech, and some banks are spending billions on transforming their banking core. In 2018, Nationwide announced $4.1 billion investment into tech transformation. Lloyds Bank has announced its $3 billion third phase of its transformation. And as you'll hear from the clip a little bit later, the Bank of Ireland started its transformation project and that could see as high as $2 billion by the time of completion. Uh, in 2021, what do we think this looks like? I mean, the base level underlying capability for banking is just fundamentally shifting, isn't it? And I don't think that's just a core debate. It feels like all the way through that stack, it feels like the the opportunities for, for changing that. But I mean, Simon, where, where do you think we are on this debate? There's been less of those, we're going to be spending a billion on transformation type announcements, but that doesn't mean that people aren't still spending the money. Oh, absolutely. And the imperative for digital was just compounded by the pandemic. Suddenly, branches are not an option anymore. And things that you used to rely on the branch for, or like you do the mortgages in the branch or the, the manual processes, suddenly 
those things don't work anymore and the systems break down. So very quickly, banks have had to figure out how to have a truly digital process that's end-to-end digital, not just taking the pieces of paper and photocopying them. And that's that's really changed things, David. But they're still spending lots of money on technology. I think you found some amazing stats in, in the past few weeks on, on just how much money is being spent in that space. I think it's $512 billion a year is being spent on, let's say, technology stacks, which is kind of terrifying, isn't it, across the board? I mean, because really, I think the the hard part about that and, and you know, between the three of us, we've talked to, to many banks over the last four years in this space where um, it sort of feels like the, the, the fund it is over. And actually, everybody's costs are getting squeezed even harder and harder in terms of the the market that we operate in. I mean, I think we uh, we saw um, just today that where there's sort of warnings going out saying uh, in the UK market, you got six months, prepare yourself for negative interest rates. Things are going to get hard. So you know, people's opex in their organisations and seeing you know a billion just to kind of keep the lights on. Um, I don't think that is really a sustainable option in any way, shape or form. Jason, what do you think? I think we've been through a few phases, like since we've been doing 11FS the last, what, five years. I think right at the start, people said, look, we've got to uh, improve our digital capabilities. We've got to be better at our app. We've got to move faster. We've got to keep our operating model but invest in the digital pieces so that actually we can keep up with the in the feature race with new players that come along. So I think everyone improved and was pushed along in that sense. I think at the same time, or maybe afterwards, people then started looking out to say, who do we partner, acquire, invest in? You know, Mariano was out making investments at Santander. Uh, Simple, Holvi was snapped up by BBVA. And then since both have been shuffled off. So there was this era of suddenly lots of investments and, and using money to start finding out things. Then I think we moved to the... Um, okay, we're digitizing as fast as we can. We're really getting the best app that we can. But actually, we also need to try this new operating model and see how it all works. And so we worked you know, with Standard Chartered on Mox in Hong Kong and with uh, uh, NatWest on Metal and in the US and Saudi and everywhere. And there's still this phase of people understanding that if you're going to make a truly digital bank, actually, it has a very different operating model. They can't take their 40,000-person business and transform everything at once. So having some level of separation is good. But I think in parallel with that, we're now seeing that actually while people are creating these um, challenger brands that, that can speed boats that can go after the market where they need to, in particular jurisdictions, they're also now looking at the mothership and saying, how do we have to organize these things differently in order to change the operating model? And I think there's been two fundamental sort of steps that we've started to see or, or, or strategies. One is a reorganization of um, from the, the kind of top down rather than product orientated of David, your head of current account, more, uh, Simon's head of mortgages, I'll take credit cards. Actually, Brilliant. we're now looking at, <laughs> we're now looking at, at um, customer contexts, value chains, value streams. Every bank seems to have a different word for it. But ultimately, it's a rather than you having current accounts and me having credit cards and us having different um, tabs on the app, actually, it's about us working together. We might still have those products in the back end, but actually, we have to deliver services around that sort of constellation of things around a new home or managing day-to-day finance or savings investment. So, I think everywhere is looking at this vertical reorientation 
which we talk about all the time around jobs to be done and actually intelligent services dealing with a need rather than selling a product. And then I think the second area we've seen change in is this platformification. I mean, Simon's written amazing banking as a service report, but we're seeing this sort of internal reorganization around there are teams that focus on the rails and teams that focus on the product. And then actually people are adding this layer in the middle that allows them to abstract the ledger and the core banking stuff below from the clever things at the top. So the traditional matrix is being reformed across another couple of dimensions where we've got now the customer context going down. But now these different product lines, which which also bring interesting opportunities because you know, banking is being cut by open banking and by embedded finance. And there are these market-driven platform layers rather than it being a technology-driven thing. So I think with a combination of, you know, creating new uh, target propositions and operating models and things separately to go after particular um, market segments or geographies, I think people are now looking at the long game of also how do we take the big thing and, and really change it. And I do think that that seems to be the method that people are using. And that's what we're seeing, I think, every day when we, you know, we go and talk to the biggest banks sort of around the world. It's like they want to know how are everyone else doing that and how should we do that and what is that transition? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, as we, we sort of say a lot to people, digital has gone from being a, a distribution channel to being the thing. Like digital, I don't want to quite make it sound like hyperbole, but it's like digital is like a way of life in all things. It is the, you know, it's a dance move and a change. It's like the way you do everything. It's a dance like, move. <laughs> yeah, come on. Like, uh, I, know, I know you know it. You're, you're the best dancer out of the three of us, Jason. Um, but, uh, but that, and I think that's that has been the change, isn't it? You've seen, um, you know, people focus on trying to spot, achieve the problem which was, I mean, initially it was like, oh God, we need a website. And then it was like, oh God, we need an app. And then now, and really through the the, the arc of these four years, uh, you know, these 500 episodes that we've sort of done, I mean, there's been a few standout moments on that where something like the Santander 123 account just perplexed big organizations who couldn't understand how, uh, you know, a big organization was able to straddle different monoliths and tie together a loyalty program. And and actually, that's where we really see the industry going, right? This isn't dumb analog products, Jason, as you, as you say. This is a interconnected ecosystem, a, a, a horizontal view of actually the things that people really want. But uh, I think we could probably go on for this one for ages. But we did talk to somebody who knows a lot about this one as, as well. We caught up with fintech pioneer Nick Ogden for his thoughts on the matter. But before we hear from Nick, let's revisit an episode from back in the day with Simon talking about the Bank of Ireland core transformation. And, you, and you've got to think about the customer at all points. If you work in back office, you work in technology, it's still critical that you're thinking about the customer all of the time. And I think it's, it's, that's where the, the gap comes and people don't think I about think it all the time. the gap time. between like that everyday life of working in a bank and that life um, of a customer is, is significant. And starting at the proposition, I mean, if you look at the Monzo playbook, Right. The thing of starting with a prepaid card, I remember if you wind the clock back three years, everybody poo-pooed starting with a prepaid card because actually, oh, well, it's just Monzo. a prepaid card. Yeah, it's just a prepaid card. We can do that. But Moniz did it, I think, as well. And and uh, I think even Revolut was a prepaid card. Revolut's still a prepaid card and yeah. will be until they get their license sorted. So 
this is a model whereby if you get the customer proposition right, it almost doesn't matter what's going on underneath. You can build a great business on a customer proposition and then work your way to the infrastructure over many years afterwards. And that dual-pronged approach really allows you to sort that customer interface out first and then gives you a lot more time to not have to do the big bang migration. But I do think there's something to be said for if I take all of my paper-based branch processes and try to do them with the latest technology, I'm not going to end up with something that's truly digital. I'm going to end up with all of those processes and all of that cost because it was the processes that were the issue. Okay, I mean, a super interesting clip then, really, really relevant. And actually, we've seen such a development in that market as well. Mr. Nick Ogden bringing you in to talk about this one. Thank you again for joining us on Fintech Insider. Hey, David, a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's been a, I mean, since that clip, since the change and since we've been recording the podcast, I mean, it's been a very interesting few years in this space. I mean, how do you think the balance really between that argument of legacy technology and the digital core, the digital manifestation of really where we need to go is, is really shifted? Do you think we've moved very far forward? I think it's been quite interesting. So I think a lot of people are creating digital legacies by accident, uh, which is, a, I guess, a play on reality. You know, if you look back at the way that mobile banking and, you know, there was a reference to, you know, prepaid cards and Revolut and all the rest of it. If you look at the way that they've sort of developed, it hasn't really moved the needle. And if you look at the way that the incumbent banks have then responded to that, you know, they haven't really moved the needle either. And the response that, you know, we're going to just, you know, digitize our process is, in my view, a bit of a cop out. What you really need to do is just to stand back from all of this and just forget where it currently is and say, if we were to change all of this and make it better, what if we did that? Now, the problem is a lot of people within a bank will say, you know, you can't do that because we're not allowed to say the words what if we're a bank. But the reality is, if you do say the words what if, quite often you come up with something that's far better. Uh, And I actually think that's slowly starting to happen. It it is amazing, isn't it? I think I completely agree with you. The the amount of organizations and actually, I mean, goodness, some of the investments that we've seen in, you know, really almost rethinking the same problems and manifesting them from the ground up, rather than, as you say, Nick, really uh, melting down some of those constraints to do it in a different way. I mean, core banking, this is obviously something that you've got a, a, a lot of uh, understanding of, of as well. I mean, this is still really one of the major problems that big legacy organizations are facing into and now have to face into because of the the sort of burgeoning operating costs that we're sort of seeing. So do you think we're at a bit of a tipping point? Do you think now, I mean, I've had it, uh, it was uh, Patrick Eltridge over at RBS said to me uh, very fondly, there's nothing in the market that I actually can buy to fix my problem, he said, you know, four years ago. I think there might be now. Do you think we're at a bit of a tipping point? I, I think we are, and I, and I actually think the current crisis that we're going through, which is why we're we're all working from our homes, has accelerated that, because I think it's actually shown that the consumer need to the internal bank practitioners, um, because there's a difference between going to work and working in the head office every day and talking about all of this stuff, and it you know we're all talking about it and it's really great to being stuck at home on the end of a Zoom or a Teams call and whatever, actually really having to look at what's going on and probably in many instances, sadly, see for the first time actually how your customers have to deal with you as a bank. So I think that there has been quite a call to Jesus, wake up call, call it whatever you like, uh, in relation to the way that people have suddenly realized how their technology doesn't really serve. 
And the flip of that is the fact, of course, that everybody in the world has become much more digitally aware as a consequence of the pandemic, you know, because of lockdown, video calls and, you know, base communication between us, us as humans. And so there's now a massive demand for true digitization and innovation in all things. And where financial services was the laggard before, it's still the laggard and it's really got to pull its socks up and drive forward, especially if you are an incumbent bank. Because if you don't, then, you know, there's no point worrying about the fact that Revolut has got a banking license now. And hey, how did that happen? Very true. I mean, one thing that is not short in financial services is investment potential, though, in terms of those banks to get there. So it's just uh, any idiot can spend money, but it's spending it in the right direction is uh, is the thing that really solves those problems, isn't it? So I guess only time will tell, Nick, but uh, it's a pleasure talking to you as always. Thank you very much for joining us for this very special episode. Thanks, Dave. Thank you very much, Nick. Okay, for our final topic before we wrap up, we're taking a look at big tech moving into banking. For a long time, there have been rumors, uh, but over the past couple of years, some pretty significant steps have actually been taken. So in 2019, the Apple Card finally dropped in partnership with Goldman Sachs. In 2020, Google announced six new partners and a 2021 date for its new checking account being offered. Amazon has been flirting all, all over the place with financial services services from uh, SME lending to all different types of things. And like Apple, it also teamed up with Goldman Sachs in 2020 to offer credit lines to Amazon merchants. It's not yet gone into consumer banking, but they're not ruling it out, are they? So, I mean, is big tech now a bigger threat to banks than ever before? I mean, Jason, this is something, again, over the last four years, we've talked to many organizations about that sort of long shadow that with people with uh, big old brands and more expertise in customer understanding than, than them. I mean, is big tech the big bad wolf for these guys? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and it's coming quietly as well. It's no you know big announcement by Google or Facebook or Apple. It's just people you know, you know are suddenly, and great people you know are suddenly working for big tech and they seem to be going on a recruiting drive. And they're, you know, it's like um, suddenly the Russian tanks are at the border amassing. And you're like, hmm, should I be worried about this? Yes, you, you really, really should. Um, you know, it's a, uh, in a, in a share price driven public company that has to continue to look for how do we, you know, ramp up and ramp up and take over more and more, then they have to look for, for new areas. And for me, it's not necessarily them becoming banks it's them commodifying banks you know we've seen this in the telco world you know we've told this story plenty of times where you know 20 years ago vodafone was was you know king of the world they would tell nokia what to put on their handsets they owned the relationship they owned everything they were in full control and then suddenly you know number portability was there and actually you could move these things around and and so the handsets were less uh, constrained. And then the iPhone came along and then Android phones came along. But then it wasn't about the phone. It was about the app, uh, you know, massive beer moths of, of players that sat on those uh, phones that sat on the networks. And bit by bit, you know, things moved up the stack to the point where Vodafone, EE, who cares what's on the little top corner of your phone? Who really cares what phone you've got? You know, have you got WeChat? Have you got Facebook? Like the rest, you know, is is give and take. So I think the the fact that big tech have done this to telcos already without becoming a telco, you know, they're they're well in their way, especially when they've got financial providers like Goldman Sachs, who doesn't have a retail presence, but is more than happy to swell their balance sheet and use their 
a high-end expertise in risk and financial management in order to build that regulatory infrastructure that sits beneath a you know data and customer-driven set of services for Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google, and everyone else. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting. I, I mean, how are we seeing now, Simon? The I mean, are the banks sort of waving the white flag? Like, is, is Goldman Sachs and, and Citibank and these guys working with big tech? Is this you know you know that thing about vampires where they can't come in your house unless you invite them? Is, are we inviting them into the industry? Is like, are we doing this to ourselves? So I think people have undersold the value of a banking license and saw lots of what a bank gets to do with that license as a cost, not an opportunity. So things like being allowed to do KYC, things like credit score, th- there are certain regulated activities that have been seen as a cost of doing business by banking, turns out to be a superpower. And what's changed is how you distribute those. And what's changed is how you see your opportunity as an organization. And I think Goldman's absolutely got this. You know, In their last quarterly report, Goldman put out that they have a three pronged strategy. One is direct through Marcus, two is through partners like Apple, and three is embedded. And that sort of API first approach to what they're going to become, but working with partners to really build out that product is interesting because it's not playing to hold on to what I've got left. It's playing to win. They've recognized that the world has changed around them, but they've recognized what their strengths are and what they can do that nobody else can, and they're really leaning into that. And I I certainly see that um, there may be a few others starting to play catch up with that. Um, I do think the banks partnering with Google shows that um, with the six or so banks that are partnered with them. So that's it's going to be interesting to watch that sort of strategy change play out. Do you go platform first? Um, and to Jason's point earlier, again, people all have different words. They call them ecosystems or value spaces or whatever else. This collection of things that happen around a problem like I need to save up for my house. Then I need to find a house. Then I need to survey the house. Then like all of these problems that are coming in a constellation together, actually the big techs working with the banks in the right way could do something really special given the data they've got access to, given the cloud platforms that some of them have. I think you could do something really, really special in that space, but you'd have to see it as an opportunity. And banks for a long time have been in the, like, how do I outsource the back end? And now it's flipping to, how does the core become my strategic advantage? And that requires, I think, a different playbook. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, does that lead to a inevitably like the dominoes kind of lead to a shifting in the patterns of business models of banks? Because to your point, Simon, actually, the opportunity there is to uh, monetize in a different way some investment you've already made. Essentially, you know, banks have got sunk cost on infrastructure and capability. And actually, now if they can, if it can be externalized and they can monetize it, then it's a way of sweating an asset that you already have. But I guess that challenge, as Jason sort of laid it out, between manufacturing and distribution of products in the way that uh, a Vodafone has been, you know, commoditized in the way that insurance companies we've seen be commoditized in the UK by uh, distribution through money supermarket or whatever. Um, I mean, are we are we going to see that play out in financial services? Because I think it's almost the realization that not every bit of banking makes the type of money that banks need it to to make that product line actually sustainable. You know, we we touched on it earlier on with lending, but like. Lending literally makes the whole system work, doesn't it? 
So I think there's something interesting as well. Like if you can partner with these organizations and like with lending, your cost of acquisition might be what, $200, $300, £200, £300 to acquire a customer and fully onboard them. Um, I think Square's talking about their cost of acquisition is around about $5. So let's say a big tech can acquire a customer, but they're also profiting from them. And you as a bank are more of a platform on the back end using your balance sheet to lend. And yes, you're doing some revenue share, but you're revenue sharing with somebody with hundreds of millions of customers around the world. Actually, that seems like a really good deal because I've reduced the cost of acquisition and I'm therefore potentially more profitable per client, even though I've shared some. So again, done the right way with the right people. To your point, David, what products make more sense in this distribution model um, and what don't? And and are you diluting your brand in the process um, because you don't have the high street as much anymore? Do you become an Intel inside brand? I think there's some really good questions that emerge. Jason, you said something a few years ago that really stuck with me. Banks haven't had to do strategy with a capital S for quite some time. This actually forces that because the the real business model stuff is changing. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, I mean, we've done, you know, business modeling and business cases for a variety of players. And the thing that interests me is that banks are used to making money in very particular ways. Hey, they're banks, you know, it's net interest margin, it's fees, it's charges, it's FX. Like there's only a certain number of ways that you you make money. And that's that product layer. Ultimately, you know, maturity transformation and savings and deposits, like banking is not just the name of a business. It's the name of of a business model. Like beneath that, the rails, like MasterCard and Visa, like show you how that works. But that's going to be eroded by Alipay and Bitcoin and and all kinds of uh, new feeds that allow metadata, uh, vast amounts of metadata to travel around because we no longer need captive networks. You know, do you really need to buy a a point of sale terminal and have it plumbed in and have a, you know, a Ethernet line, you know, whatever late? No, you don't. Like we've got the Internet and we've all got smart devices. So I think there's a different way of making you make money on the rail side. There's a different way you make it on the product side. And actually, the successful digital businesses in the services side all make money in a similar way. You know, they make uh, fees and subscriptions. There's freemium, premium. They're ad supported. There's affiliate fees. So, so when you look at each layer, I think uh, that the the new retail stack has. Um, they, they all do different jobs, but they all make money in different ways. So the modern digital bank, or let, let's say the modern uh, PSD2 open banking player could be a fee subscription ad supported, you know, freemium premium play that sits on a Goldman Sachs that makes money with net interest margin and fees and charges that sits on rails, which charge fractions of a pence to move money around the world. Meanwhile, maybe they're connected to a the journey, the embedded finance, where it's the retailer paying for it because it helps them sell more stuff. And suddenly we've got escrow insurance and lending and a variety of other things embedded there. But each of the the sort of decomposition of, of banking into these various layers have different business models, different ways of making money, different ways of organizing. And whether some organizations will straddle multiple layers, you know, the typical Apple vertical integration play, I know you love that, Simon, where you've got a um, you know, an amazing experience because they control everything down to the silicon. You know, there is a space in the banking world to do that as well because the open banking APIs are not great. There's loads of them missing. And if you could really do services on top of a privileged set of APIs connected to a next generation product uh, where you've got a balance sheet at scale with rails that belong to you for peer-to-peer transfers, 
there is a way of winning the market where you connect those things together. But there's also a future of the world where actually you're a, a layer winner. Klarna wins the top layer. I don't know, um, Money Dashboard wins the middle layer. Yolt, say, wins the middle layer. And then Goldman Sachs wins the product layer. And, you know, I don't know, Bitcoin wins the uh, Rails layer in some way. So so I find it interesting that uh, different players could play at those layers, could make different money in different ways, could have... Um, you know, you could have a services player like Apple working with a with a product layer like a player like Goldman Sachs, and the ways in which that could evolve over time is super interesting. But it's not all banking business model. It's not lending, uh, and everything else just loses money. It, it's something about how value is driven at different points. Mm, it is fascinating, isn't it? And, and to your point, the market is almost being separated now. I, I, I really think to both of what you and Simon have, have said, it's there is a real sense of organizations that are sort of playing defense in the industry of existing business models, existing ways. And those like Goldman Sachs who are uh, you know, really flipping that and going like, it's not my revenue. It was yours. Ha ha. Like here we are with a gigantic battle sheet, um, balance sheet and <laughs> battle sheet is probably a, a good, uh, a good, uh, Freudian <laughs> on that shit. one. Uh, but, uh, but actually, um, you know, really going on the offense into industries, but guys, look, we could probably do a whole show on this one and probably should, cause it's fascinating, isn't it? But speaking of big tech hiring awesome people, then, uh, Mr. Sam Ball. Uh, Sam is now working over at Google and wanted to weigh in on this topic as well. So let's first hear a clip from an episode with Simon giving us his thoughts on the matter for context and then uh, about the news that Google would soon be offering checking accounts. Let's hear from Sam now. I think what's interesting is they really have to design this around the consumer because I agree with you, it's totally a data play, but right now it still feels like technology looking for a problem to solve. So mm-hmm. would love to see what they actually do. And your point about trial pay, it's interesting, that was years ago. Mm-hmm. That problem has still not been fixed at scale. I completely agree. And, and it's really interesting that all these big companies throwing billions at it. They've been trying to fix it. it for more than a decade. I remember money 2020 and 2012, this was one of the big topics. When will big tech get their data play right? And I think it's still not been solved. And I think we've seen you know, the some progress in terms of uh, the, the X pays, the Android pay, the Apple pay, and so on. But we haven't seen the progress necessarily in the, the bit that they wanted to fix. Um, and it feels like now uh, moving deeper down the stack from the payment to the checking account is is still trying to solve that. But in doing so, you realize that having a checking account and delivering that to consumers is hard. And it's like they're coming from solving their problem, not the consumer's problem. But they do say um, that they're talking about, uh, you know, offer product advantages, including that, that loyalty program. But we're not clear if it will start to show fees. Are they going to do some basic PFM? Mm-hmm. You can kind of get that as a consumer now. So they're just another provider of that. So the why Google, why now question, I think, remains unanswered. So we have Sam with us. And as I heard that clip, Sam Moore, uh, you've now gone to Google. Um, I guess you have some different perspectives. Times have changed. We've moved on a little bit. A year later, do you think we have an answer for why Google, why now? Yeah, it's real easy because I joined Google. I mean, you know, it's all about the people. <laughs> I put them up over the the hedge, if you will. Great movie. Yeah, yeah, it is, by the way. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you move a year on, you take a look at everything that's changed. Mm-hmm. You know, and honestly, let's do start with people, Simon, because some of our favorite people in the world are at Google now. Derek White, you know, who we both love and know from Barclays and BBVA. 
Yolanda Piazza from City. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I can I can rattle off a list that would make everybody go, damn, I want to join Google. I also look at the Google Pay um, plaid piece where there's really a lot more they're doing with consumer data than they were before. And and, it, and a lot of the Google Cloud platform is feeling, feeling like it's also helping banks solve consumer data problems. But what do you think 2021 looks like for big techs and banking? Because it, is it competitive? Is it collaborative? That's always the worry that's out there. Yeah. And, it, and it's been the worry going back to, you know, Lord. 2012 when you and I were first going to money 2020, right? This mm-hmm. massive threat. Although then it was, is it going to be Walmart and um, MCX? Remember that one? So, you know, that threat has always kind of been talked about. But I mean, flat out, even when, you know, Google and we did the announcement around Googleplex and the different banks that were partnered with Felix Lin, who's with Google, he just flat out said it. Google has no interest in ever becoming a bank. I mean, he just has flat out said it over and over and over again. As an observer, though, like when you can make so much money off being a supplier to the banks, like it just makes no sense why you'd want to be one when there are perfectly good banks, perfectly good at being banks. It just, yeah, it doesn't make much sense. But do you do you think that who, who is going to move towards banking? Is anybody going to move towards banking? Or, or is that like the wrong question? Because it's moving towards finance rather than banking. That's the answer right there. And Simon, you know this better than just about anybody, right? We're getting back to what does banking mean? Mm-hmm. What is a bank, right? And so at, at its core essence, it's it's holding that charter, right? And it's holding that license. It's the trust and component of that. And that is incredibly important. But 11FS, y'all have been doing this. I almost said we all, everybody, because that's, you know, reflex. But it's true. Think about all the different organizations that you're working with on building out digital banking solutions on every geography, right? Um uh, car sharing, ride sharing applications in Asia, you know, utility providers in Indonesia and Malaysia putting out financial products. I mean, it's hello. Everything is fintech. And yeah, when we're supporting Grab building new digital products, like Grab are doing everything. They're, they're, they're doing insurance, they're doing finance, but they're doing it in the context of solving their customers' problem. And there's banks still behind the scenes, the city and a few others supporting them to do that. The bank hasn't gone away. It's just, it's not necessarily got the bank logo on it all the time. And that's that's an interesting shift. And, and, and that's what I was going to ask you next. Like, what are your predictions? Are we going to see more of that? I really do believe that. I mean, think about Google itself and Googleplex. You're talking about bank logos. That's the thing. The bank logo is still there because it's obviously there because the bank does own you know, the customer relationship. And if you look at the partner banks in the announcement, if I remember right, we had 11 that we talked about. Good number. It ranged. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I'd like to say I influenced that. <laughs> um, <laughs> didn't, but you got everything from city all the way down to the Harbor Bank of Maryland. You ever been to the Harbor Bank of Maryland, Simon? You probably have. I can't say I have. I've been to some odd places, but that's, that's a new one. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so you talk about a spread there, right? Coastal Community mm. Bank, you know, and then Bank of Montreal. So you talk about all size and scale that we're looking to partner with. And I think that, again, that is the key word. It's partnerships. Let's be honest. We're all trying to tackle an incredibly massive problem that we have. And that is that financial services, the infrastructure and what it was built on is not fit for purpose for the digital age. And it's not serving consumers and it's not serving society. And actually, if we have partnerships that can help solve that, then take the people with the charter and the people best at technology and where do you end up in the middle? Exactly. And that's the sweet spot for 11FS, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons the company was, was formed. When you, Jason and David and others are sitting around, you could look at the landscape four years ago and go, man, there's just a massive gap. It's only 1% finished. I know all 
the good line, Simon. They're all right here. <laughs> we got you well drilled, but it's also the emergence of B2B fintech. So if you, you can work with all of these smaller suppliers and build your like patchwork quilt or your perfect mixtape of all of these fintech suppliers on a platform that solve customer problems that are either embedded or indeed uh, may even have a bank logo on them at some point. Sam, I always appreciate catching up with you, my friend. Thank you so much for being back on the show. Always fun. Miss you guys. All right, guys. Thank you very much, Sam. Glad to have you back on the show. And that about wraps up episode 500. I mean, a lot has happened between our very first episode and now. Thank you so much for sticking with us on this journey so far. There is so much more to come. Simon, Jason, where can people find out a little bit more about you and the good things that we're up to at 11FS? Simon, how about yourself? At SY Taylor on Twitter or just look us up 11FS.com. And for yourself, Jason, where can people find you these days? On Twitter, at Jason Bates, or of course, you can reach out to me uh, if you want to talk about any of these kinds of things at jason at uh, 11fs.com. Numbers, not words. Indeed. And as for me, I mean, if people don't know that at this point, then uh, what, what have you been doing with your lives, guys? Like, uh, uh, as for me, you can find me over on Twitter at David Breer. Thank you so much for listening. If you do like what you've heard over the last 500 episodes, subscribe to our podcast and do not forget to leave us a review. We've had some pretty damn amazing ones over the last 500 episodes. We're really, really grateful for them and they really help other people find the show as well. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on pretty much every social media at this stage uh, or you can email us on podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. It's going to be way more episodes to come. Goodbye. Goodbye.